it is in your rational self-interest as a leader to get your people to engage and to get new ideas because that makes your life so much easier. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. Okay, let's get started. So welcome, everyone. This is Fishbowl Leadership and Strategy, or Understanding Leadership and Strategy. So there's our co-host, Christoph Lohr. Hello, Christoph. Ah, uh, hello. Great to have you aboard. We're just starting this. So this topic is Understanding Leadership and Strategy. And as I was saying, this is really near and dear to my heart. And I say that because I spent six years duty active military. I left as a captain in the Army. And when I went into corporate America to do leadership and strategy development, notice I, I combine them both. I've always understood those two to be related. That leader, you know, if you have a strategy, you got to have someone execute that strategy, right? Well, in corporate America, though, I was really shocked, really shocked and learning that, you know, oftentimes strategy is developed in the corporate head headquarters. And leadership training is usually run by HR. And I could, I, you know, really too far extremes. And I didn't really see them connected. So what I've been doing for the past, uh, gosh, 15 or 16 years in corporate America, I'm a uh, leadership and strategy advisor. I come and help organizations develop their strategies and I develop their, their leadership, whether it's their senior managers, managers, directors, VPs, SVPs, and even their C-suite. I help them develop the competencies and skills to drive execution, to drive their strategy, especially under times of uncertainty. And uh, if anything, if one company I've worked with that you've heard of is called LifeLock. In fact, I was with them when they were worth only $30 million and they used my, my, uh, my expertise and I was able to support them for over two and a half years to help them go over, to go over an evaluation of 600 billion uh, or excuse me, 600 million. I wish it was 600 billion. So that's where, that's where I'm coming from. I really uh, want you all to understand that what we're going to talk about today is the interconnection of leadership and strategy. This would be about 80% leadership and 20% strategy. I'm not going to bore you with academics, with, uh, with all these philosophers. I'm not going to do that, but we're going to talk practicality. And I really, really hope, again, if you have questions, concerns, uh, or even feedback or stories, I would love to hear them. I really would because I think you just being, uh, you engaging is going to help the audience. And speaking of leadership and strategy, my co-host here, Christoph Lohr, is the youngest VP in his organization, the youngest. So here's a gentleman who knows about leadership and, and helping drive strategy. In fact, he's VP of strategic initiatives. So hello again, Christoph. You want to say hello to the audience? Definitely. Got my engineering degree uh, a little over 10 years ago and, and started working in the realm of systems level design for, for commercial buildings. And through that process, um, you know, through volunteering and trying to do some side gigs, I uh, kept getting myself exposed to, to different leadership and strategy development opportunities for myself. Uh, started small uh, and then was able to um, hone in on those lessons. And then from there, you know, kind of, especially the last, what seems like last three years and even through COVID, just basically jumping from strength to strength and, and um, getting noticed in my industry and, and, and basically getting the opportunity to uh, advance my career. And, and as Kevin mentioned, uh, now I'm, I'm a VP uh, at IATMO. Um, so um, definitely uh, feel very fortunate and 
Kevin, thanks for inviting me here and excited. Well, thank you, thank you. And so how are we going to start this conversation? Well, I wanna do two things. All right, audience, I'm gonna do two things. First, the first major thing we're gonna do is we're going to establish a baseline. And I'm going to give you a definition of leadership, a solid definition, I think. It's a definition I use with my clients. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to explain the pieces. And I want you, if you're going to take notes, this is, I think this would be something important because once that we talk about leadership, I'm going to talk to you about strategy. And then we're going to see how they're connected because this is really, really important to understand the lessons and the tactics, which I'm going to tell you later on. So how do I define leadership? Four parts. Now here's the general sentence. Leadership is the art and science of influencing others to actualize a vision in the most constructive manner practical. I'll say that again. Leadership is the art and science of influencing others to actualize a vision in the most constructive manner practical. First part, art and science. Look, leadership is a science, is a huge body of knowledge that it spans over 2,000 years. Uh, there's lessons of military campaigns, kings, queens, military leaders. It's just, there's a plethora of information out there about leadership. This is where you learn your principles, uh, you know, all the tactics, even techniques that they're, they're very applicable, but it's an art. It's also an art in that we all learn, we all have special talents. We all do things differently. That means it is a stylistic application of the science. And for the audience here, if we all read a book on how to write a book, let's say we all read it, and then we're tasked to write a book. Let's say we had to write a book about sharks. All of us are going to write that book differently, but we're still going to employ those principles. I might write in short declarative sentences. Christoph here may write, you know, in very eloquent, long sentences. He may focus on different topics than me. Why? Because that's the art of it. That's how we apply it. So in a sense, even though there is a science, we apply it differently. We apply leadership differently, uh, our ability to influence others. And this goes to the second part, influencing others. Notice, uh, for the audience here, I said influencing others. What verb did I not use? What is, what is something that's missing in there? I use influence. I didn't use another popular verb in leadership today. I didn't say persuade. Persuasion is an element of influencing. It is absolutely an element, and it's very important. But you cannot say that you're always persuading people. You have to set the conditions where you build the levels of trust among people that people are willing to take risks. They're willing to do those things outside of your periphery, outside of your, uh, your sight and direction. That's what influencing means. But it also means creating the conditions so that people have the ability to act when you're not there. That's very, very important that they will act and you trust them to do that. So that's what influencing means. Yeah, not just their actions, but their words, their decision-making. You know, Kevin, on that note, because um, actually I think from uh, my behavioral profile, which you and I worked on together, uh, that makes me think, you know, one of the things on mine being a, a high extrovert, uh, I think one of my common behaviors that we recognized was that I would try to default to persuasion. Um, can you just real quickly touch on, um, maybe just list off the other types of ways um, to influence people outside of persuasion? Oh, that's a no. Oh, that's a great point. Yes, uh, sometimes high extroverts are, are all about people and relationships, so they want to make sure that they inspire and motivate you. So they're very optimistic. They'll get people a, a part of that. There are other people who are uh, direct tellers. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm a high dominant. So what that means is 
Uh, I, I would rather tell you than sell you and get you apart. Like, I assume you're going to be a part of this. All right, let's, let's get this thing rolling. There are other people uh, who are about making sure that you understand the facts. They want to make sure that you understand the gravity of the quality that's needed here. So different ways of persuasion. And, and you make a great point here, Christoph. you got to understand your natural behaviors. This goes really to the art. Because if you're going to influence people, you need to realize that if you're a big picture thinker and you're always about the big goals, and if your team is, for instance, all about the details, you have to be able to communicate in a way that hits them that sells to them in terms of making sure that you're addressing the things that they're good at and they want. That's, that, that's a great way of influencing. So we're still here on the definition of leadership. We've talked about the art and science uh, influencing others. Now notice the third part here, the third out of fourth, actualize a vision. I did not say accomplish a task. I did not say accomplish a mission. I said actualize a vision. Now why? Uh, tasks are very easy. I give you A, you do it. A mission is very much like that. A mission usually is composed of many tasks, many goals inside that. But they're very specific. If I give you a mission to, you know, go to Taco Bell down the street and you go and Taco Bell's closed, what do you do? What's, what, uh, do you come back to me and ask for uh, permission or do you find another alternative? This is what vision means. A vision is a long-term, it's almost very abstract. It's a long-term, what we call end state. It's something in the future. And the fact is when certainty and uh, when uncertainty comes, and it's sometimes what we call the fog of war, when it clouds our vision, when things happen that we don't anticipate, we need people to do those things outside of the task. I might have directed you for X, but you might have to do Y. The question is, you come back to to me uh, and I have to direct that to you or assign that to you, or do you do it on your own? This is the real secret about leadership. It's about preparing people to act when chaos and uncertainty comes. You want them to accomplish really the end goal. Don't tell them how to do it, just tell them what is needed. That is really, really important here because so many leaders here just they're, they're taskmasters. They give out tasks. And what happens is I do this task. You do this task. You do this task. And you keep coming back. If you give long-term goals with the expectation that I expect you to accomplish it however you see fit, but you have to hit these metrics. If you do that, then you're, you're creating the conditions for them to accomplish the, the, their mission, their task, whatever it is, the best way available. And it, it, might, it might be faster than you think it is. It might be at lower cost. So that's what the third part is, to actualize a vision. The fourth and final part is the most constructive manner practical. And that means there is no such thing as perfection. If, you're good, if you accomplish your, your goal, make sure you do so with all the information that you have available. Uh, there is, you, you're not going to have everything available, but you've got to have enough to make educated decisions. So those are the four parts of leadership. And just to encapsulate this, again, it's the art and science of influencing others to actualize a vision in the most constructive manner practical. So audience, that's what a leadership, that is really the definition with the four metrics there for leadership. Uh, did I miss anything of that, Christoph? Did I miss anything? No, I think you, you covered it all. Um, yeah, I was going to say, you know, when it comes to, you know, my question in, in this now, when you've gone through and you've kind of discovered, you know, what, what the mission is, I mean, it seems to me that, that there's some questions out there then, you know, if you're trying to get something done and you're trying to influence people, um, you know, can you, can you anticipate the future? Can you, can you get something done to, to 
um, to try to stay ahead of the curve, as it were, you know, if you're, if you're trying to do that? Or is, is, is leadership a little bit something different in that regard? Oh, that is, that is a fantastic question because can you anticipate the future? This leads, this is a excellent segue to the second part of strategy. Excellent question. So audience, so audience, I have a question for you. So the question you asked is, can you anticipate the future? And for the audience here, this is the question that you need to consider. Can you anticipate the future? Because how you answer this, how you answer this is going to dictate your strategy. Okay. So let's say you can anticipate the future. Let's say I absolutely, uh, I know what's going to happen. If you believe this, then when you strategize, when you identify your goals, when you identify the means of doing it, you are going to create what we call, very generally speaking, a deliberate strategy, a deliberate. And if probably some of you have heard of like, uh, Michael Porter. If you ever go to business school, that's all they talk about is Michael Porter. He is essentially the patriarch of uh, the deliberate strategy. And what is a deliberate strategy? If we know the future, if we know what's going to happen, then we create almost like a linear path to success. Think about a single lane on a highway, a single lane. We establish our goals, A, B, C, D, and E. We know what they are. We, uh, we've done our intelligence work. We've invested a lot in planning. And what happens is when we launch, when we cross a start line, we are focused on ensuring the process. People go out and they accomplish A. Remember, the no surprises, we know what's going to happen. We, we accomplish A, we move to B. And what you find is with a deliberate strategy, there's a real focus on management. Management. That means overseeing the process. Make sure we hit our, our metrics on A. Boom, go to B. Boom, boom, boom. All right, go to C. Same thing. Now, the challenge with the deliberate strategy, the challenge with saying, it, with saying, can we anticipate the future? And you say yes. The challenge is that, well, I'll give an example. McKinsey did a report, I think, two to three years ago. All right, audience, I have a question for the audience here. What percentages of strategies fail? They fail to actualize. What strategies fail to actualize as intended? Anybody want to take a guess? I'm a, I'm, can I make a guess, Kevin? Please. I'm going to guess uh, only 10% of strategies. 10% of strategies fail. Is that what you're saying? Oh, sorry, sorry. 10% of strategies succeed, so 90% fail. Okay, hold on. We got most, uh, we got Mo Costa. Mo, you got a, you got a 90. Yes, sir. Uh, Christoph and uh, Mo, yes. 90% of strategies fail uh, to actualize intended. Now, audience, why is that? Is it because these companies, all these multi, multi-million dollar companies lack real thinkers, real geniuses to help it? No, of course not. They have the talent. The fact is that things change. Conditions change. Sometimes your competition goes left when you think they're going to go right. Sometimes the economy tanks, <laughs> you know, circa 2020, and we have a pandemic. Sometimes your best uh, employee leaves or they change position or they change roles. All these elements affect us. Uh, they affect how we plan because when you plan, when you strategize, you are literally taking an image in your head. This is how I see the future. And if I do these things, this will happen. But what people don't account for are the things that we don't know, we don't see. You know, again, your competition, the external economy, your internal, uh, you know, your internal issues. So, so let's revisit the question. 
Can you anticipate the future? If you say no, then you fall into the very opposite of the deliberate, which is called the emergent strategy, which is actually a very popular strategy, though people, I don't think people realize it. And this is where we connect leadership to strategy. Okay, audience, this is it. This is the place where we connect. Why? Why is this? Because it, where then the deliberate strategy we plan from, we do, remember, remember the idea of having a, a singular, a singular, lane and a, a general highway because we anticipate the future. Since we can't know what's going to happen because things are always changing, what the emergent strategy does, it creates a general highway with 12, 10 to 12 different lanes. We know we want to go to this ultimate goal, but we're not sure exactly how to get there. And what happens is since we can't plan forward, we have to make it up as we go. This is important. We have to make it up as we go. And for the audience here, got another question for the audience. Since we can't plan it forward and we can't anticipate, how exactly do we make it up as we go? We're moving forward. We're hitting to uh, objective A. How do we make sure that we need to go to objective B or maybe it's C? What is the force, the element that helps us do this? What is the element that is going to help direct the strategy because we can't anticipate all the obstacles coming in front of us? What is that force that's going to help us? Oh, uh, Mo says OODA loop agility. Uh, well, that, that's a process. I'm sorry, who, who what did you say, G, uh, G Tendra? I apologize. What did you say? I guess it's motivation. By, motivation by who? Motivation towards the success for the implement of strategy in the right direction. Uh, I would say more generally, I'd say it's leaders. Unlike the deliberate strategy, which relies really on focus on management, on managing process, what happens is it's a focus on leadership. And what do I mean? Situational decision-making. It's the managers, the senior managers, the directors who are on the ground, literally in the trenches, who, as, you, as your company is moving forward, who say, you know what? Objective B, perfect. We're about to hit it. Or, you know what? We don't even have to do objective B. We could actually skip it and go to C. That's where leadership comes in. It's that situational decision-making. It's the people on the ground who have the authority or the ideas to suggest new ways of driving your strategy. And this is the real, real emphasis on this whole topic here. If you're going to understand leadership and strategy, you have to understand that leadership carries the burden. If you're going to actualize your strategy under, under <clears throat> settings of uncertainty, then you have to rely on the people on the ground. And I don't mean necessarily your frontline workers, but though they're, they are important, it's your, it's your middle management. It's the people who have the teams, who have the eyes, you know, you might say the eyes on the battlefield. They're seeing the things around them and they have suggestions. They have new ideas of doing things. Uh, that really is the, uh, the essence here, terrain-based leadership. What do you think, Christoph, since, since you're co-host here, does that make sense, the idea that if leadership is about helping actualize a vision, there's many elements of uncertainty and we can't necessarily anticipate the future, then we have to rely on leaders on the ground to have drive it from the ground up. Does that make sense to you, Christoph? No, I think so. And actually, that, 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 that point about terrain-based leadership uh, in my mind, what I almost wonder if that that's pointing to, you know, you have when you're making a, um, and I wonder if maybe this is one of those. I, you and I have spoken a lot about strategy. Uh, I think we'll be talking uh, in, perpet, uh, in perpetuity on strategy, um, um, but um, terrain-based, you know, that the changing conditions of the ground. I think that kind of speaks to the fog of war. What's what's the terrain that you're you're going over uh, when you're when you're trying to accomplish something? So, do, do you modify your you modify your actions that you're taking 
you know, based on the conditions on the ground. And I, I would think wholeheartedly yes. And I think this this gets into the whole idea of deliberate or emergent strategy, if you will. Yes. No. Okay. No, that's a great point. Yeah. So I'm uh, sorry I didn't understand uh, that, Mo. Okay. So now how do we do this as leaders? How do we develop ourselves to basically help be a real, real, con- help provide a real contribution to the company strategy? There's two things you have to look at. Effective leaders, effective leaders balance the two pillars of leadership, and that's mission and people. You, you are there to accomplish a mission with your team in the most effective manner practical. You're also there to make, to make sure that your team is not damaged, that they're durable, that, that, uh, that they can replicate su- success over the long term, over and over and over. So those are the real basic two criteria. And what I've done is I've, I've identified some different tactics and tactics, excuse me, tactics and techniques, uh, maybe some strategies for you that fall into those two buckets there, the mission oriented and the people oriented. And remember, you have to balance both of these. So if right now, let's say you're middle management, how can you really increase your value as leader? It's this way. It's, it's helping to, again, contribute to the larger picture. One way of doing that is to look at your company, not necessarily in terms of its department. Uh, so, you know, some companies will have a sales strategy. Some companies have a marketing strategy. I would suggest, and in my experience, a successful, agile, flexible companies, they see it much more broader. What is your revenue generation strategy? Now think about that audience. What is a revenue generation strategy? Is that only applicable to sales? Is that only applicable to marketing? No, it incorporates all of them, all of them. So think about this. If your VPs are you know, using this military terminology, if they're all generals in the battlefield, why would you just have them work alone when you bring them together to cooperate, to collaborate on specific initiatives, uh, strategic initiatives, things that they could actually uh, multiply their effectiveness? In fact, there's studies out there that if you have more than one department or business function cooperate on planning, you probably, I think the chances are two to 300 times likely to actually exceed your expectations. So this is a real big thing. Instead of your corporate headquarters, just, just making some general outline or plan and hand it down to the ranks in the bottom, you work your way up. You bring those function heads together. And let's say you're head of sales, you bring your senior directors together. What would you do? What would you do to either increase sales decrease costs or a combination of both. If you're getting the people's feedback, uh, especially in the bottom in the middle of your organization, that's incredibly helpful because you're getting information that you prob- that other people are probably not getting. And there's a people element to this too. What do you think happens to people, to these professionals, when you uh, ask them questions like this, when you engage them for the audience? What do you think happens? I'm asking people, uh, this is the people element thing. W- what happens to people when you have them participate in a strategic process? What happens? They provide. Well, yeah, but w- what's the greater factor? W- would you say that engagement, uh, the, you, would you say your engagement scores are going higher? You think people are finding more stakeholder value and being a part of a team, knowing that their voices are being heard? You think that could be a possibility? Oh, certainly, most. Yeah, and I tell you, that is incredibly important for the audience here, incredibly important, because remember, when you cross a start line and when things start happening, when, you're, when 
your best players, uh, your best employees start leaving and they go somewhere else and your strategy is disrupted, you need people to improvise, to in a sense, to fulfill where that strategy was going without being specifically assigned uh, to do it. You need people necessarily to improvise. And when you, has, when you have people engage and you ask their opinions, I mean, get real opinions, not just pie in the sky stuff, but really what could we do here to either increase costs uh, excuse me, to increase revenue or decrease costs or both, you're really in getting the engagement scores up. You're really showing uh, uh, that you're helping to ensure high satisfaction. That's the kind of stuff that makes people go out of their lanes to, to do those things which you really didn't expect them to. That's what a successful organization needs to be flexible. So I hope people can see right here that there's a, that real connection between driving strategy of, of leading it, especially during times of uncertainty. You've got to get people engage, that they want to be engaged, and that they're giving you their ideas. And I can tell you my experience, I've seen a lot of organizations that don't do that. They have, they have a strategy at top, which is nothing more than a laundry list of tasks. People do it. They come in, you know, uh, they, they, they hit X, they X marks the spot. You know, it's, it's just a big checklist. But there's no new innovations. There's no new efficiencies. They're not being competitive. That's just one example. What do you think? No, I think so, Kevin. You know, and that actually got me thinking. I mean, you know, to avoid that trap of of just trying to get the X marks to spot. I mean, would you have any recommendations to um, for our listeners as far as things that they could they could actively do to prevent that kind of mentality, either for themselves or for their organization? Well, I think one is yeah. I I tell you, in terms of mentality, it is in your rational self interest as a leader to get your people to engage. Why? Because if you don't get them engaged, uh, if you don't get them engaged, you don't get their ideas, where does the burden fall? <laughs> it falls on your shoulders. It is to your benefit to get new ideas, uh, to get people really excited because that makes your life so much easier. Remember, your return on investment, whether you're a manager or a director or a VP, it's identified. It's about looking upwards. What happens is when you don't get people engaged uh, and you start reacting to the, the every crisis, every emergency, you become a tactician. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of like a lot of our generals in the army today. They're a lot of them are just overpaid battalion commanders. They're all about tactics. They don't see the big strategic element to it. This is the big thing. If you get your people focused on what matters, they will they'll really surprise you with your with your ingenuity and innovation. But you have to understand that it is necessary. You have to let them grow. You have to create those kind of conditions where they can provide ideas, where they can provide input, that letting them know their input is welcome. So you got to kind of, yeah. I say, so is it fair to say that if you feel like you're just, you're just reacting to things that likely is that you might have a non-existent strategy or a strategy that's not. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I cannot tell you how many times I've worked uh, here for the audience here. I'll give you a little, a quick story. Uh, I've worked with a uh, a product manager for a company who is, uh, let's say it's $100 million in revenue. She works right underneath a COO, directly report to COO. The COO is tasking her to identify what the strategic objectives are, though he's not even using that language. So what happens is she's getting burned out because she's having to figure out what the boss is doing. She's not being included inside the leadership, uh, the, uh, the executive leadership teams. Why? Because she's a senior director. She's not a VP. So if you don't have those insights of the bigger picture of creating not the single lane, you know, that single lane like a deliberate strategy, but a, a general highway, here are the two or three or four major things we have to accomplish this year, whether it's revenue generation, whether it's organizational development, whether it's financial, uh, or even whether it's 
reacting to regulatory, uh, whatever it is, whatever the strategic objectives are, once you establish those, then a good and effective executive leadership team will rely on their leaders. They will say, here's what has to happen. Here are the metrics for success. Now chief of staff, now head of sales, head of marketing, head of, head of corporate communications, make this happen. Come back to us in a couple of weeks with a plan. If you can do that as a senior executive or as a company, then you're increasing the odds of success. Why? You're getting your people engaged, you're getting the best ideas from the ground up, and you're putting putting the burden on the people who actually know what they're doing, who are actually in the trenches, who, who know everyday operations. If you do that, then your chances are you're, you're more likely to succeed. But what happens is people today, like McKinsey said, act very, have a, they have a deliberate strategy. They go in, the, they go, they'll create committees, they'll create a, you know, your traditional vision, your traditional mission, and some objectives and a laundry list of tasks, and that's their strategy. And then next month when they're executing it, something happens and it upsets the entire strategy. What do you think, Christoph? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's, I think, you know, I've, I've dubbed it as systems thinking, uh, but but thinking through what what you're doing and thinking through how all those things relate um, and making sure that they're cohesive, I think is an important part of it. You know, Kevin, you know, we're, we're about at the, the bottom of the hour, Mark. You know, do we want to talk a little bit about some of those finer points within the mission versus people? Because you've mentioned that dynamic a few times and you mentioned it here at the beginning as well. Can, can we reflect a little bit and kind of give some a little bit of a breakdown for our listeners on that? Uh, yeah, so I have four major areas that I focus on uh, as a uh, as an advisor. And, and I'm, I'm going to briefly go over a couple of them, but there's one I'm really going to drill down is. Uh, of the four major uh, elements, one is called it's called self awareness, and you and I know this, Christoph. This is about a doing. This is about knowing who you are and who your people are. Meaning, some people out there are fast paced, big picture. Some people are more methodical and love details. You have to know who you are. Why? Because believe it or not, a strategy, uh, whatever strategy you make, is going to reflect your preference. It really is. Uh, if you like fast-paced things, guess what kind of strategy you're going to make? One that usually has fast-paced and bigger, broader goals. You have to know uh, who you are because that's going to influence the planning you make. And realize it's also going to affect your team. Just because you're fast-paced and like the bigger picture does not mean your team is comfortable with it. And if they're not comfortable, then that means, in essence, they're taking – instead of writing with their, with their dominant hand, they're writing with their non-dominant hand, their left hand. It's very uncomfortable, and it causes burnout. You need your people to be completely engaged, wanting to be engaged and satisfied, and making sure you know who you are and who your people are. That's going to help you create a, a, a long-term strategy um, yeah, looking forward. So that, in a sense, it controls almost the risk, the pace, the timing. The second part, which I think is really, really important that you need to understand are the competencies. And what I mean is here, in leadership development today, it is almost exclusively skills-based, skills. Skills like, you know, this is how you communicate. Uh, this is how you use PowerPoint. It, it, it's, it's special. It's special knowledge based on certain types of condition, conditions of certainty. Competencies, on the other hand, are general bodies of knowledge. So, for instance, if you can understand leadership, or excuse me, strategy, if you really understand what it is and what its essence is, then you can easily 
uh, learn the skill of strategic thinking, of strategic communication. You can see you see how you can subdivide that uh, those pieces. So in terms of competencies, there are four things I want the audience to remember here. These, to me, are really the key metrics for success in connecting leadership strategy. The first, thinking. Think in essentials. Essentials are critical. Why? Essentials are are the human way of compensating for mental capacity. Uh, I'm sure many of you have talked to a friend or two and you know they're jibber jabbering with you for you know two minutes, and after that two minutes you're like, what the hell did you just say? You, it, you totally, uh, it's all mental overload. When you got to remember that the human mind can only retain seven to nine distinct concepts or ideas at one time, only seven to nine. If you give anything over than that, then people just, it, they literally overload. They forget what's, what's happening. They lose focus. So when you think, when you plan, when you strategize, I always suggest no more than three to five elements. For instance, I told you about the strategic dimensions. I told you only three of them. Why? Because I want you to remember them. When I give you my definition of leadership, there are four parts. You could talk with your fingers, four parts to that. Art and science, influence, actualized vision, constructive manner. Those are four parts. Why? Because when you talk to your people, when you're giving directives to your team, you have to remember that they are balancing not only you, they're balancing their environment, the people around them, their home life, their pets, whatever. They have so many things in their minds that it could, it could be overwhelming. So if you want people to remember things, to keep your directives in your head when you're not there, make sure that you minimize it to its bare essentials. That's what essentials mean. Keep it simple. Keep it to a point that you know the fog of war is coming, that they will remember it when you're not there. So that's number one, thinking essentials. Number two, just because you had those essentials in your mind doesn't mean you can communicate them well. This goes to the second uh, element, communication. I would tell you, if anything, if you want to be a successful leader, you have to compel your people to work together, to speak together, inter-team and intra-team. Uh, when I've done strategy development, I bring everyone, uh, no, I say everyone, Let's say I'll bring the heads of all the business functions and maybe even a senior director of theirs too. I want marketing and sales to talk. I don't care if this is a corporate communication initiative. I want marketing in there, uh, possibly even sales. Why? Because these guys probably these guys and gals probably have ideas that I have no clue about. They probably know methods that I that we don't know, and I want their input. I want them knowing what the guy or gal is doing on their left or right. If they know what's happening, that they're more likely to support. To to give you assistance. And this is a big trap here. A lot of people don't do this. They just communicate inter-team. Get people to talk. Even if you don't think they belong in the room, get them to talk. Now, I'm not saying bring in your part-time worker to have a discussion with your, with your, your VP of sales. Please understand that. But if there are potential stakeholders involved, get them to talk, ask them questions. And if you have to be direct like I am, go around the room. What do you have to do in this role? What can you do? What can you provide? And then go person by person. If you do that, I promise you, you will get new perspectives and ideas that you probably didn't consider. That right there is going to raise your effectiveness as a leader and help you drive strategy. The third part of this now we told it that's communication. Now you're speaking ideas, but now we have to put them in concrete form. This goes to planning. Now planning. 
Uh, planning can be a little intricate. Uh, you know, a good plan has a situation, really a justification of why this thing is even happening. It has a one-sentence mission statement. It has what we call an execution element. That means that's the concept, that's the larger picture, along with the essential task of, of what's happening. But I would tell you this. If you really want to raise your return on investment as a leader to your organization, ultimately get that bigger and better, bigger paycheck, you need to learn contingency planning. And that, what I mean is, I mean mental wargaming. Christoph, I have this plan here. This is the plan I want to do for my book. This is, this is what I want to do. But you know what? Christoph's going to ask me, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's the most dangerous thing you're in it, your competitor could do to you? What's the biggest pitfall that, that might hit you? When you ask those questions, now I'm thinking, okay, okay, well, what's the worst thing could happen? Well, well X could happen or Y. Then when you, when you write that out and identify what the biggest thing, the biggest threat is, then you look back into your plan and figure out, well, if that thing did happen, what could I have done to prevent it or to anticipate it? And that invites extra steps inside your plan. In essence, you could create a plan that is so, uh, it, it's so safe in a sense that you have actually prepared for almost chaos. You've prepared for the worst case scenarios. Uh, it might be a couple extra steps, but it's actually probably your safest. If you can do that, uh, I think your team it will be much more comfortable and being flexible and much more engaged because even, even if you don't get it right, the fact is you were thinking about it prior. It shows them that you care, that it's important, and in a sense, you've given them indirectly, implicitly, the permission to improvise. You're going to say well, something, Christoph? Yeah, I guess I was going to ask a question. I think that the thing I always struggle with is trying to figure out what the how to predict the future. What is that worst case potential scenario in all of this? Um, do you have any suggestions for myself or anybody else that feels that way and trying to identify that you know, when they're trying to come up with, with ways to, to mitigate or try to you know, prevent? Well, uh, that's a very, you know, it's a great question. It's very particular because it, it really depends. Uh, you know, I worked with a company who uh, was rising very fast and we knew the government uh, was watching them. So we were able to create contingency plans. What if the, uh, the FEC or the FCC, or I'm, I'm th again, I'm throwing these out just for ambiguity's sake. What if they came and did X? Well, that means we should, we should have talked to our lawyers and, lawyers and did X, Y, and Z. By doing that, by identifying those steps to take, if that event actually had happened, we threw that inside the general plan. So th that's a corporate strategy. You know, what happens, uh, for instance, what happens if the economy, you know, something happens to the economy and our budget shrinks? What happens if a, a competitor throws something that actually disrupts our, uh, our main flagship? You know, it, it really depends on the company. Uh, what happens if our, if, our, if our computer systems are outdated? I don't know. It, again, it completely depends on the company. But the question is, ask your people. Ask your people. I think you'd be really surprised at the answers you'll get. So that's, uh, that right there is the communication, the, the third of the competency. The fourth competency, execution. Now, feedback loops. It is incredibly important that you create feedback loops. Now, that's a fancy word for just having people tell you what's happening as they go. So I would tell you this. One of the most important lessons I've done uh, in my career is when I work especially with chief executive officers, I ask them, what's your PIR? 
What is your prioritized information requirements? Now, you're probably saying, Kevin, what the hell is that? That means what PIR means. It means what do I need to know and what don't I need to know? That's really what it means. What are those things that if they happen, you got to tell me ASAP. What are the things that happen that if they do, I don't care. I don't need to know. I would tell you right now, if you can prioritize your communication, that's going to increase the effectiveness of your feedback loops. If things are happening out there and you need to know it, boom, they know to inform you instantly. If things are happening but you don't need to know, they're not going to tell you. They're going to fix it themselves, and that frees up your time as a leader to drive that team. I hope people understand that that is incredibly important. It sounds simple, but you have to articulate it, explain it, and commit to it. And that's the big thing. The big thing, again, with behaviors, you got to know what's important because there are some people out there who will say, look, I don't care as long as, you know, X happens, as long as we don't have a, a, an ethical complaint against a company, I don't care. That's, that's very general and broad. There's some people who will list you 20 or 30 different things. That might be stretching it too much. You got to learn, again, what are the essential? What are the essential things that you need to know? Maybe there are essential things in your revenue generation. Maybe there are essential things in your organizational develop. Maybe they're the essentials of your finance. You see how I'm dividing them based on, on the dimensions. But whatever it is, make sure that you clarify it. If you can bring this to your boss and ask him, what is your PIR? That invites a conversation. What is PIR? What are those things that you need to know and you don't need to know? You do that and you're going to make their life much easier because you're freeing freeing them up from just burying them and all this non-essential things which you know it attracts so many executives they get caught and they get caught in the weeds the daily tactics it mires them if you could free them for that and still keep them focused on the big picture your your value as a leader uh, really goes up so got two more things so that really is the competency uh those are the competencies and in fact when i talk about systems management that really is uh the third element systems management, the feedback loops. I would tell you also that, again, when you have that awareness of you and your team, the teamwork. Now, what do I mean by teamwork? I hope people will remember this. And if you have comments, please, I welcome them. You cannot control people. You can, you can guide them. You can persuade them, but you cannot control them. People are going to do what they want to do. So I hope you remember that when you're doing, when you're trying to get your teams to work. How do you know what people are going to do? You got to do the behavioral survey and a good survey. I don't mean Myers-Briggs. I definitely don't mean DISC. I mean a good scientific survey that tells you who the people are, how they're role-playing. In fact, how they're trying to influence your perception of them and even the stresses. If you know this about your people, then the chances of you, uh, the chances are increased heavily in your favor of ensuring that you can communicate with them, that you're actually giving them the kind of work that they're really good at and in the end it makes your life so much easier you know let me ask this question kevin because uh, we're, we're kind of ending on this note of behaviors um with our last 10 minutes here uh, you know you're, you're talking about behaviors which is obviously a little bit we've, we've sprinkled it throughout this conversation how important do you think behaviors are in the grand scheme of things i think they are decisive and, and I'm not exaggerating. In fact, I spent six years in the army. I think a year of that uh, was actually fun. Uh, and the reason why is uh, I didn't know about myself. And it's only until I got out of the army that I realized who I was. There's a reason why I'm an entrepreneur. There's a reason why I'm in this p profession. It's because uh, it has a certain characteristics which which really reflect who I am. Once you know who someone is, and, and again, you got to know specifically what are their real strengths, what are their natural inclinations of how they act. 
Once you know that about people, then you realize that people have talents and that you want to tap into them. Not because you're doing some altruistic uh, motivator, but because look, as a leader, why why carry the burden yourself? You have these people here who want to do who want to be successes. Help them be a success. Understand what they're really good at and remove the obstacles. Uh, to answer your question, Christoph, it is really decisive. And I would tell you, there are a lot of companies out there that I think they're on the path they want to do the behaviors. But it's very tricky. If you're going to do behaviors, first, you have to have a good tool. The second, you got to know who's doing them. Uh, there's a big difference between an, uh, a vendor versus an advisor. Uh, a dirty secret in leadership coaching is that a, lead, a lot of leadership coaches are mostly vendors. They have a certain behavioral tool, and that's that's 90% of their entire practice. Uh, that's really all they know. They just sell you the tool, and they talk about the, the details. Uh, what you want to find is an expert or an advisor, someone who uses the tool, who has their own experiences and even uh, even their own philosophy, their own methods of, of management and leadership. That's really important. And the example I would give to the audience is just consider this. Imagine, imagine you have a couple million bucks in the bank and you want to be an indie race car driver. Okay, you want to be indie race car driver. What you're going to do now is you're going to buy a car. You're going to buy a racing car. Who do you listen to? Do you go down to the to the sports car uh, shop dealer? Do you listen to the, the car dealer who tells you about all the details of the engine, of the tire, to gives you all these facts about the car itself? Or do you go to the Indy race car manager, the person who has managed people, who has used cars, who knows the type of engines you need, who needs the type of wheels you need? That's the big difference. You got to find, if you're going to use behaviors, make sure that you find an expert who tells you not only what the tool says, but what it means in terms of thinking, planning, execution. Uh, I mean, would you agree with that, Christoph? You've met a lot of vendors out there, right? You know, it's funny you talked about, you know, kind of thinking back to the answer you had before, Kevin, and, and you know, I, I will say, you know, I've, I've certainly taken a lot of, a lot of the different um, behavioral or personality metrics out there. Uh, actually, I even wrote an article about it. If, if anybody was interested, I can send you the link. Um, my sense is there's one out there and that's actually it's the one I got a chance to do with you um, and, and, and yours in my opinion was one of the best experiences that I've had and we actually um, just completed it with my team and my team thought it was a fantastic tool too and I had I had two guys on the team that were very very skeptical at first uh, we're talking seasoned professionals um, and both of them had you know were very skeptical going into it and both of them wouldn't stop singing their praises to me afterwards about it. Um, so, you know, when we talk about behavioral metrics, you know, if you can, if, if you have one out there that really resonates with the team, it's important. It's worth, it's worth the investment to do it. And especially from, from understanding yourself at the very least, if you're a leader, leader in development, it's so important to making sure that, that you are understanding who you are, you know, so it's great to do it early in your career, but if you're late in career and you're managing a team, getting your organization to invest, um, you know, and, or if you're in head, head of the organization and investing in your people in this kind of a way, it's great from a professional development standpoint. It's great from a, uh, from a, um, from a team building, uh, and it's great from a building effectiveness of your of your of your team and your organization standpoint as well. So, um, and that dovetails right into the executive coaching. Again, you know, I think it's important for folks, you know, early in their career, early early in their career, to find mentors. 
Um, but as you progress through your career, um, you know, once I'm, I'm kind of in the mid stage of starting those mid stages of my career, and even though I've been a little bit on a fast track, you know, I've, I've identified several high folks as mentors, but it's still worth the investment in finding an executive coach to, to help fill in those gaps. And there's differences. There's differences in what the value proposition is in a mentor versus an executive uh, coach. And so, you know, I've been fortunate enough, Kevin, to have had you as an executive coach now for several years. And, and I have certainly learned a lot uh, in that time and, and, and look forward to learning more from you as we move forward. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, for, for the audience here, I want to give you one... Um I want to end with the, with the last element. We only have a couple of minutes left. Culture. Culture. Uh, I, maybe some of you are like me. Sometimes I cringe when I read about culture. I think a lot of people out there, when you hear culture, they think of uh, beanbag chairs and games at work. Everyone's having fun. You know, I mean, I mean you know what I mean? Like, like almost like circus fun. Work should be fun. Uh, I want you to think about culture a different way. Again, think about strategy. If uncertainty is out there and the fog of war is out there and it, it, it sows doubt into people, you need them to act on their own, to show initiative, to take those chances uh, that you may not uh, expect them to do. Well, how do you do that? You have to promote the type of values. You have to adopt the kind of customs that reward initiative, that make people eager to come to work, who see work as fun. It's not the video games. It's not the beanbag chairs. It's the idea that people are being productive, that they're proud. They're proud to say, I was a part of that company. I helped bring in this initiative. Yeah. Wait, 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 Kevin. So are you saying that incentives within the work organization matter? I, I believe it or not, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm just saying that. Please make sure that you look at the values of uh, I call it a productive purpose. People like having success under, underneath them. Reward, not just reward them, but, but uh, pat, you know, not just the pat on the back, but tell them this project is worth this much. Look what you did. Congratulations. That's the kind of stuff that people want to yeah. be a part of, be, to be a part of success. If you can have that kind of culture, I tell you right now, you're, you're really laying the foundation that people will execute un- during times of uncertainty, that they will help you emerge that strategy as you go forward. And I think this is a good way to circle back. This, how does leadership and strategy connect? It really is because we can't anticipate the future because we have to think generally and we have to rely on the people on the ground for their engagement, for their ideas. So what do you think about that? How's that for a finish, Christoph? I, I love it. You know, just I would say, you know, I, I, I love your point, uh, especially on the culture side of how how a lot of organizations think it's just the beanbag chairs or the, the ping pong tables or, or that. Um, culture is much more performance-based. And, and I've seen firsthand organizations that have focused on sort of trying to make the organization fun without really getting to the root of what the purpose of that organization is. And, it, and really for me, and I think for, for people that are high achievers, especially the people that are your all-stars in your organization, I, and I imagine a lot of the people on this call are, are, are high achievers. Um, you're not going to sit and listen on a on a on a on a you know one hour um, you know fishbowl on leadership and strategy unless you were wanting to do well in your career. I think that's a key thing, and that's you know as you progress in your career, if you're in charge of an organization, it's that realization that that you know what is the purpose of the organization. And, and honing people towards that because people joined the organization not for the ping pong they joined it because they wanted to make a job and have a paycheck and, and make money and so getting everything aligned in that way uh, is so key now 
is it wrong to have the ping pong table? No, but that needs to be an intentional decision um, and not just uh, trying to emulate what another company is doing. If the ping pong table makes sense for the culture you're trying to create, yeah. But if it's not, then then no. And again, that's aligning all the incentives and aligning the organization together. And then culture is a big part of that too, Kevin, as you as you so eloquently said there. So um, no, no, I t- totally agree. Totally agree. So we're running out of time. Thank you, uh, everyone. Please look at look up Christoph and I on LinkedIn. Uh, connect, and I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye bye. That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and, who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon.